When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The DubLab Creative Cultivation Salon is happening on Saturday, March 23rd. This rare fundraiser event will feature special guests, live performances, and carefully curated DJ sets in the inspiring and creatively stimulating offices of Cargo Collective in Frogtown. More information will be coming to the airwaves soon. Hello and welcome to In Conversation, a Dub Lab podcast where each week we will bring you interviews from the Dub Lab Radio Archives. I'm Big J. Magnini, you know, 90 years old plus and still blowing my brains out and having a good time with all the crazy cats. So, where did you come up, Big J? Well, you know, I was born and raised in Watts. And um, at that time, you know, uh, it's amazing how peaceful it was. We didn't lock our doors. And um, my, we had to take a bath in the number two tub, you know. <laughs> and uh, we had to grow our own vegetation. We had chickens and ducks and rabbits. And we seen Watts there. It was very peaceful. We had our Really international, we had all different races there, Italians and uh, Japanese, Chinese. And, and it was really great, but, but we lived in a circumference of about three miles, you know, from 103rd to Alameda to Imperial and Compton. Yeah, that was it. Mm. But it was nice, very peaceful. So April... 29th, 1927 is uh, when Big J McNeely appeared right here on this uh, plane in, in Watts, California. And you're, you're mentioning that it was, you know, it was a different scene, a different world at that time. Oh, point. yeah, a different world at that time. Uh, you know, at that time you could go downtown and see 10 movies for 10 cents. And we'd ride to Watts Local for 10 cents downtown. If you had 50 cents, man, you could go down and have a ball, mm-hmm. have breakfast and lunch and, and dinner and go to the show. And very people. Like even in Watts, we had two theaters, mm-hmm. the Largo and the Linda Theater. And we used to put on a lot of uh, amateur hours there. Johnny Otis was in the Watts, and that's where he discovered Little Lester and a lot of the different other fabulous artists that he had produced out of that. And the Barrel House was there. <laughs> Tell us about the Barrel House. What was the Barrel House? The Barrel House was a very groovy place. It was about six blocks from my house right there on the Wilmington Avenue by the railroad track. Um, they put on a lot of shows. They put sawdust on the floor and Hunter Hancock, the disc jockey, would come out and advertise at 12 o'clock at night. And Bardu Ally, who uh, discovered Ella Fitzgerald hmm. uh, at the Apollo Theater, and uh, he was a great influence on me. He really helped me to appreciate how the agents that would steal all your money. Uh, when I had my big hit, uh, 1949 Diggins Hop, mm-hmm. and he explained to me how the, they would overcharge you for pictures, and, and when you went on the road, uh, you uh, would get 50 percent 
would come through the door. Like if you made five hundred all over a thousand, you would get it. And they would send the same road manager out with you, and of course they would buy you a new car with your money. And you think you're gonna continue to have hits? You may not have another hit, but then when you come back, you you owe everybody. Money, so you know you're young, you don't know, especially a lot of the artists come out of the south are working maybe for twenty-five dollars a night, maybe ten dollars a night, really. <laughs> and sometimes they let you work for the door, etc. Then you know all at once you got a hit, and they put ten thousand dollars in your hand. You know nobody can say anything to you after that. You know. So he explained to me all of the things what they do, and he was with Johnny Otis in the Bear House. And quite naturally, they uh, knew all the different acts. They had like pan, pot, and skillet, com- com- different comedians. And, and they put on a tremendous show. And it was really great because my first hit record was with Johnny Otis, who called Bell House Stomp. Mm-hmm. Uh, 1948 was my uh, first recording. The diversity of your neighborhood, diversity of Watts, and you're you're mentioning Johnny Otis, which to me is one of the most interesting LA characters because he's of Greek heritage, but he really felt more connected to the African American community. Yeah, he um, well from up north, and he came down. Uh, he was married to a, a black woman, yeah. you know, and so uh, he had that soul. Great guy, mm-hmm. and. Uh, Really, we, we put on a lot of great shows. He always had a good, good, good band. Yeah. And, you know, I was young, <laughs> trying to play my horn, you know, at 17, 18 years old, uh, trying to uh, make a name for myself in the mm-hmm. music business. I uh, started off playing jazz with Little Sunnings and Hampton Halls, great pianists that went with Howard McGee. And when Diz and uh, Miles Davis and all the guys would come to Los Angeles, we would uh, follow them around, <laughs> and um, I didn't have a perfect pitch ear like Sonny Chris, you know, where you can just, these guys with a perfect pitch ear can play any key, anything, they, I mean, if they can hear anything they hear, they can play. Mm. I had to work, differently. I had to work hard to uh, be able to accomplish what I want, so uh, we went. I went from Jordan to Polytechnic High School. Mm-hmm. And then I left there at Sonny Chris, and I went to Jefferson High School, and we graduated, and we played Chopin, Chopin Minute Waltz for a graduation. And we had to get off because we were working in a club on Central Avenue. That's when Central Avenue was mm-hmm. grooving, you know. You had the last word, the downbeat, and you had the uh, club, of cotton, like the Cotton Club in New York. You had Alabama club right across the street. You had Jack the Basket where all the musicians, you know, when we get off from work, we'd come down. Uh, Scatman, Coretta's, Miles Davis, get, get Gillespie, all the heavy cats would come down. And Jack McVay. And then at that time, they had their little house that they called Speakeasy where you want to go and sit down and have a little drink, you know. So Tell us about the, the vibe of that kind of scene. And was that more so than the, the bigger clubs? Was that kind of where people were getting together and, and talking music and stuff? Like, what was the, the kind of speakeasy scene about? Yeah, well, it was like, you know, people would have their different little homes. Mm-hmm. And then you would go over and they'd have their little 
liquor there, you know. Sure. <laughs> Before you sit down and drink and talk. And, and it was really great. Like all the movie stars, like Clark Gable and Jane Cagney and all the cats with Humpty Brogard would come down to Central Avenue mm. because that was the scene, because that was the music. Because it wasn't not anything in Hollywood like that. Because yeah. you had uh, all the great cats, Nat King Cole, uh, Duke Gallatin, and you had uh, Billy Eckstein, and all the heavy musicians played Central Avenue. Yeah. Then they had the club called The Plantation uh, on 108th and Central. That's where all the, you know, that was a real big club where all the musicians would go. Then later on, down on First Street, that ship playhouse that would bring all the great musicians in. So you had them flowing in, but then finally they had Dizzy Gillespie, you know, at, at Billy Berg's out in uh, Hollywood. He started bringing in all the jazz jazz groups. But on Central Avenue, everybody played on. Nat King Cole, all the heavy cats, Lionel Hampton, we all played on Central Avenue. And that was the grooving spot. I mean, everybody was grooving. <laughs> How was it laid out? Was it club after club after club? And what was the street scene like? If you're if you're walking down Central Avenue, young man, flash back to that moment and paint a picture for the listeners of that scene. It was really great because like you had the last word on one side of the street and on the corner, forty second you had the downbeat that was across each other. Then right on right across from that you had uh, the, the the hotel there, Dunbar Hotel where they had that. The, the show just like the plantation there in, in, in New York, and they had a full course line. You know, all the great uh, Mom Mabel and all the great acts would come there, and that was the scene because at that time, you know, uh, the color couldn't stay in the uh, hotels, mm. so they had to stay there. Uh, and then they had another one down right on Adam that they could stay. So the whole scene was all of the top musicians yeah. played there on Central Avenue. That seems like where you would want to be if you're involved in music and energetic Oh yeah, space. Yeah, because they have like in the afternoons or something, they'd have jam sessions, you know, like Buddy Collette. It uh, was really great. And you had Charles Mingus. It was really great. We all came up and watched together. And they would have uh, Lucky Thompson. Oh, man, they had some great bands that did great uh, musical scenes there. Uh, what was a what was a musical moment as as a young man there you know involved in music? What was a moment that blew your mind where you just felt like you were shooting to the sky? Well, you know we had what we called local seven six seven. That was the black local. Uh, sad to say, local forty seven were very prejudiced, hmm. uh, and a lot of people wanted to hear uh, some of the different artists that were different, and they would. <laughs> we pick at the place if uh, we uh, if they wanted to hire us, and it was very very difficult. So we had local seven six seven. That's where Dexter Garden, the great saxophonist, mm -hmm. and they had the big bands. I used to go down and hear them rehearse, and it was incredible. And at one time we started a nonprofit organization that we wanted to help musicians because a lot of musicians weren't able to maybe go. And to study, mm. to be able to be able to perform, in all capacity, you know, where they could read music, uh, if they want to play jazz, and so some of the teachers, like I studied from Joseph Caneline, he played first chair at RKO Studio, mm. and um, 
it was a great experience for me because um, when I got out of high school, like Sonny Chris went on into jazz, Hampton Hall, but I went and studied for a year, and uh, I began to sound like a cello on saxophone because we learning four barbarata at hundred playing with non-pressure armature. We studied so fair air training. And uh, since my brother was in the Army, he had the GI Bill, and we studied from Gene Barham. He taught the high lows, Judy Garland, all that. He was an opera singer. And so we had good extensive study for a year. And after, I had a friend named Prince Stansel said, Big J, do you want to record? And I said, yeah. And I didn't know what I was going to record. As a kid, in, a fellow in Watts had a, a record store, and he collected records. He was really sharp. He wouldn't just stack his stuff. He'd buy a little bit, a little bit, you know. So he gave me a record by Glenn Miller with the drum. And uh, the opening thing with the drum, and I wrote Diggins Hop and become a big hit in 1949. It was trying to decide what name they wanted to put on the label. And so, you know, my name is Cecil, but he, he didn't like that. He figured it wasn't a problem. So he said, what's your nickname? I said, oh, they call me Jay. And he said, Big Jay. And so that's how I got the name, Big Jay. Was music throughout your house, did you, did you gravitate towards the instrument for a particular reason? What was drawing you to the saxophone? Well, what happened... <laughs> Uh, when I was in grammar school, you know, grade three school, you know, after they had a little affair and I wanted to play the saxophone, uh, like don't fence me in or something, <laughs> I'd have my brother teach me a yeah, song. Then I'd just put the horn down because I wanted to play trombone or, or drums and my family couldn't afford it. So uh, I'd just pick up a horn and play something, throw it back under the bed. And there was an alto that my sad say my cousin had got in an accident and lost his life, and they gave us an alto saxophone. And so uh, I was all right with it, but I really wasn't that interested until I got six. I was sixteen years old and working at Firestone Rubber Company, mm-hmm. and the first four hours was cool, but the last eight hours I just couldn't. I just couldn't make it. I said, man, it has to be a better way to make a living than working eight hours a day. So I, I got on a bike, my bicycle, and rode uptown and picked up an alto sax that uh, my brother had left because he went to the Army, and he had left with uh, Buddy Harper. He was, he was a great arranger and write, write a lot of stuff like Duke. Bought the horn home and, and just up blowing, man. And, and I was studied from Miss Hightower. was paying 25 cents a lesson. Mm. It was only 10 cents to ride to watch local up to, to Jeff, but she lived right by Jefferson High School. Was there a sound you were trying to emulate? Was there somebody who you thought was the tops at that moment? Well, it was so many guys. Uh, Coleman Hawkins, you know, he was so great. With, he was really known for body and soul. He did a great thing. And then you had Lester Young, and you had Dexter Gordon, and, uh, and Charlie Parker. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Uh, so many of them, uh, guys, uh, Eddie Lockjaw Davis, you know. You had so many different artists, that Illinois Jacket, you know, they put on them jazz concerts, you know, they had, they had the Philharmonic. It sounds like music was everywhere. Music was permeating your environment in school, 
were you guys talking about these tunes between class? I mean, you played with, you had Sonny Chris and the Hampton, the Haas. You guys had a jazz band together in school. Was music kind of always on your mind here? Was that yeah, the conversation? Oh, yeah, that was it, you know, because, like I say, after I got 16, you know, uh, I stopped playing with, I, you know, I didn't have any training. Mm. And my brother was in the Army, and uh, so I started, like I said, I started for Miss Hightower. And she could, you know, she knew about notes and the things, but to really get you into your horn, uh, to really get a good, big, great sound, uh, she didn't teach saxophone. I, I didn't learn that until after I got out of high school, and then I began to study from this teacher, Joseph Cadillac, and what he taught us how to play with the non-pressure armature, big sound, and that's why, you know, uh, when I play one note, but like you have vibrato, and sometimes you don't use vibrato, and there's certain notes on your horn you can play to get a different sound, and all these different things affect the people, Yep. you know, high notes, low notes. And like normally when I come through the audience, I watch people close. If you have a $300 suit on you, I might play, Laura, baby, do they, while we screaming. You know, the next one I'll sit on someone's lap and, and play high notes and scream. <laughs> and, uh, and like, you know, the, the experience of me laying on the floor, you know, the, the great picture you see on the wall over there. This is the photo that Bob Willoughby took, yeah. 1951 Olympic Auditorium here in Los Angeles. It's an iconic photo, but for people who haven't seen it, can you explain what is in this scene? Can you describe what's happening here? You might notice I'm laying on the floor, mm-hmm. and that's really created excitement. And I never had any intention of laying on the floor, but I was working in a little town in Clarksville, Tennessee. And at that time, all the musicians, we, dre- we dressed in tuxedos. I mean, you know, all the artists, we, we were very proud of our music, and we didn't get on the bandstand with uh, jeans and, sh- and just shirts, and we were sharp. And so we would do like two hours, and then we would take a break and come back and do the rest of the show. But the people didn't respond. They just sat there and looked at us as, as they say, what you going to do next? Mm-hmm. On the next set, I walked through the audience. I got on my knees. Nothing happened. And I laid on the floor. Bam, they went crazy. I said, whoa, wow. <laughs> I said, let me try this. I got to Fort Worth, Texas. I'd, I'd lay down in the mud anyway because I could get my suit clean the next day, you know. And some one girl said, oh, don't lay down there. Oh, I didn't care. I'd lay down. All you have to do is let your hair down. If you can't let it down, take it off. And if you have nothing to wear it off. Just be cool, because everything will be stone crazy. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. All you have to do is clap your hands and follow the band while we grew with Dick and Tom. Oh, yeah. 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 got to Los Angeles, I uh, laid on the floor, and you can see the response of, of, of all the kids. And what I would do, I would play like in the high school, but then when I do a gig on the weekend, they were there. Mm. 
and I was playing to like four or five thousand white kids in Spanish every weekend. We would go to like a little local theater and we packed the place. Yeah. So what happened with this picture, we were doing the, the concert down at the Olympic and we'd go uh, midnight, the show was going on. And so Hunter Hanson would have that, hey, come down, Big J, McNeely, and all the crazy cats are blowing their brains out. And so Willoughby, I talked to his son, he said his father heard it, so he packed up his stuff and ran down and uh, he shot all these pictures here. So you've got the audience here. I mean, people are totally, it's like, you know, just enraptured with this moment. People with their eyes closed, sweating, screaming. I mean, you're you're connecting with people you're you're blasting through their bodies and souls and you know doing something to them how did that feel to be in in that moment oh it was great because um i appreciate the people because you are a slave to the audience and you're trying to uh, help them to enjoy themselves Mm -hmm. for the night and i get the same response all over the world Mm -hmm. not only here in america but it was wonderful that he captured this picture that night and, and, and other pictures. And if he hadn't, well, it would all been laws. So what happened is that they barred me out of Los Angeles. They wouldn't give me a permit to play. Because they were afraid that you were riling up the audience? Yes, and they didn't understand why the kids were responding the way they would take pictures, go to psychiatrists, and the police would come in. They'd try to say, what's going on? So they figured, well, the only way we can stop this is don't give them a permit to play. Because, see, I would play at the high school, then I would go to, they want to put on a fair bit in Huntington Beach. A newspaper come out the next day, a reporter said there was a thousand kids dancing like Watootsies you know, uh, on the concert, and they would follow me around. So they said, well, the only way we can stop this guy, we don't give him a permit. But when you're in big agencies, they have the influence that uh, can get you in places where you normally couldn't go. And so my manager, he uh, put me with GAC. Now, they're booking Nat King Cole, Johnny Ray, Ray Anthony, all the top acts. Now when you're with a big agency, you can work clubs that other acts can't get into, period. Mm-hmm. I would play the children's circuit because I'm with GAC. I played the part of it. I'd go in Birdland mm-hmm. in New York. That's where there's all the jazz people. Uh, first time I played Birdland was with uh, Ben Webster and uh, the jazz vibe player with, with, with Diz. And Earl Garner, and I was the opening act, you know, we stayed right across the street. Like, you go on at, at 8 o'clock, and you wouldn't go back on to 11 o'clock at night because the club stayed open to 6 o'clock in the morning. You know, there's more people on the street at 6 o'clock in the morning. You see people here at 12 o'clock in the daytime. I mean, New York was just, was just kicking. that my manager told me, Big J, you have to be staged. And, of course, I didn't know anything about that. But, like, you know, we went to went to Vegas, 
you have to know how to walk on the stage, you know how to walk off, you know how to acknowledge the people, and everything is correlated, you know, with the way you walk, the way you talk, the way you act. And they pay people thousands of dollars to, to do that. So this fellow was going, he said, Big J, you got to be staged. So he hired this fella from the Trocadero. He was uh, there in Hollywood. So for a whole week, he just came down, said, do everything you want to do. And he just sat there and watched. And I used to take off, lay on the floor, I'd take off my coat and throw it on the floor. And I'd go back and pick it up. And he said, don't do that. You're a king. You let somebody else. So that was a great. Then he taught me how to program people. Uh, if you're going to play five minutes, ten minutes, half an hour, an hour, mm-hmm. he taught me how to release people. I would go from a Latin rhythm to another rhythm and, and, and capture the people. So in other words, when you hit the stage, here I am, this is what I have to say. And you don't give them a chance to think about, I want to hear this. No, you got to hear what I want. So I, I learned that. And that helped me when I got to Birdland. Uh, like one time we was working there uh, with Dizzy Gillespie, Bud Powell, Charles Mingus, Eric Dawson, Nat King Cole had got sick in uh, Canada. And so they brought Sarah Vaughn in on top of all of that. Mm. She was saying Misty and the whole place would be just completely still. You know, they'd have a spotlight to just take in their face. And then when they say Big J, I'd come right on. I'd come on screaming because this is, uh, uh, that was my style, you yeah. know. So I didn't try to change my style to compete with what they're doing. Mm-hmm. I, I'm going to do exactly what I want to do. And, uh, well, <laughs> well, actually, I'm doing my show. Mm-hmm. And uh, I wasn't going to try to come in and play some you know, jazz mm-hmm. tune, I Hired the Moon or something like that to compete with it. I'm going to do my show. Yeah. Tell us about some of the things you enjoyed doing to kind of shake people's minds up. Yeah, well, you know, it's entertaining. You have to reach the people's heart because that's mm-hmm. seat of motivation. Uh, like I used to have two saxophones because one changed color when you turn out all the lights. I, have, I painted with fluorescent. So what happened when I came to Los Angeles, it was like Joe Houston and Chuck Higgins, they was copying my act. Mm-hmm. And so I had to, I said, well, you know, what can I do? I was working, there was a club called the Nightcap where all the artists would come. And this girl came out in fluorescent dancing. I said, oh, that's it. Mm-hmm. So I went downtown, told the guy, I said, man, you got to paint my horn for it. He said, well, we never, I said, that's what I want. So put the transparent. So when I had the black lights, mm-hmm. uh, the horn would light up. And so they didn't know what was happening. It don't take 30, 40, 50 minutes to impress people. Mm-hmm. Some guys will play a number, then they sit up and talk. Oh, well, we're going to do it. But, I mean, they don't lost the audience. Mm-hmm. You, you kill them. So, and your big, boogie woogie is big. Mm-hmm. I mean, they'll have 15 or 20 boogie woogie pianos on a concert. Can, can you imagine hearing that many different pianos? But they, they're all different, kicking. So, my manager... Uh, asked him, say, well, look, uh, put Big J on the show. Mm-hmm. He said, well, it's all completely complete. I've got, you know, I don't have any money left, but what I do, I'll give him 10 minutes in a room and some food. So I only had 10 minutes, so they think, well, we give him 10 minutes. Well, you know, uh, what can he do in 10 minutes? So I got my black lights. I, 
And so I told the guy, I said, now, when you see me put on white gloves, can you turn out these lights? He said, yeah. So I said, look, man, just give me a good shuffle. Then I get the people talking about Big Fat Mama, you know, Big, Big Fat Mama. And I got everybody singing with me, you know. And then now, now I only got 10 minutes. Then I went into to Honky Tonk. Hmm. And, you know, they all sitting at that table. Then I started walking through the audience, and, you know. And, <laughs> and when I got back to the stage, I put, I put my white gloves on and laid on the floor completely, completely dark. All you see is some white gloves and a saxophone. <laughs> and, man, the house just come down. And so people said, man, where did you get this cat, man? <laughs> I work with different groups. This particular last group I worked with, they were jazz musicians. So when you're playing jazz, it has a certain sound. Mm-hmm. Like I do a tune called Welcome to California, Now nah, Go Home. And it's really a country like Welcome to California, boom, 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 Now nah, Go Home, you know. <laughs> Movie stars and the plenty of bars and you never... Feel alone. If you plan to get a three bedroom, you better go out and get a bank loan. Welcome to California, baby. Now go home. So, uh, but jazz, you know, that they want to jazz it. I said, no, man, this is country. So, because mm-hmm. when you're playing country, <laughs> you have to play country, the country groove, you mm-hmm. know. But they want to jazz it. I said, no, man, this is country, you know. And like I had a problem because when people see me lay on the floor, they don't know how much musical training I mm-hmm. had, you know. And they just categorize you with blues with maybe Jimmy Reed, doom, 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 which is great. And so they don't know what class to put me in. Yeah. And they don't know how much I have studied. Mm-hmm. Where, and, where would you put yourself? What would you, if somebody asked, you know, what do you play? What would be your response? Well, you know, I play everything. Uh, the thing is, if you get the audience involved, yeah, then you got it made. Mm-hmm. I mean, I learned that, and so I do a thing like called party, party, and the bass is kicking. And uh, of course, I get all the audience hollering. When you got the audience involved, that's what kills it. So what I do, I get the audience like party, then the audience says party. And I got the whole audience, I mean, they're just screaming. And so, all right, you know, you you entertain the people. Talk about this idea of connecting with the audience and the idea of programming and and seeing somebody in a $300 suit and knowing what to do to them. So it's, it's this connection, but the sound itself the the kind of the the ability of you on the saxophone to kind of build that energy you know it's it, it's almost like the repetition that you hear in, in music from around the world i mean in in morocco you know ganawa trance music bringing people into trance like states through this cyclical repetition of something was there a moment where you started to kind of form that particular sound or that idea of that super energetic playing that could Bring people into a frenzy? Yeah, well, you know, normally when I would start playing, I'd start playing from the back of the audience. I mean, you know, I'd come through the audience. And so when I come through, I'm, I'm watching people, how they respond. And you're playing solo. You're, yeah, you're, yeah, it's yeah, just yeah, yeah, your yeah, sax. Way up tempo. 
belly, and we kicking, you know. And uh, as I come through, I, I watch how people dress. Mm -hmm. And um, like I did this show in um, in Australia, okay. Um, the night before the show, they had me outside. It had floodlights, water hoses, and police following me hmm. down the street. So now the night of the show, I'm getting out of a police car and I'm going down the corridor, and now they're flashing outside and inside. So now when I start to walk up to the stage, now we're going to do a tune I got called 3D. Now there's only so many <laughs> courses we can take. So I picked this girl up. I used to take pick girls up, different ones, mm -hmm. and uh, I take them up on the stage. Now she'd never seen my act before, so I'm 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 gonna lay on the floor doing this number, mm -hmm. and so I'm, we're playing this. So when I got ready to lay down, she was trying to hold me up because she thought I was falling. I guess. <laughs> <laughs> so I finally got down on the floor, and uh, we got up. And we finished the number. You know, I just I I, I watch people. I can tell. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, would like grab this one, or I'll sit on a guy's lap and he just laugh. You know, and so I I learned that, and uh, like in San Diego, I got put in jail. You know, I um, tell us the, about that. Yeah, I didn't have at that time. I didn't have a wireless wireless mic. Yeah. So when I'm playing my horn, you couldn't hear me. You know, only in in the real presence of you, yeah. you could hear. Did so, it draw people in? Did you yeah, find that, yeah. that the lack of the amplification brought people closer to you? Yeah, because that, that's the only way they could hear me. I'm walking through the crowd. So here's the band's playing. So when I get to the door, my brother's behind me and a trombone player, but it was so crowded they couldn't get out. Mm -hmm. So I went outside, and I guess an off-duty cop <laughs> police come by, and saw me blowing my horn outside, nobody out there but just me. And, and I guess he said, well, man, this guy must be crazy. So he called to the station, and the police came down and put me in jail. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and the band was still playing, and I was gone so long, I guess they said, well, where's this guy? Well, you know, because normally I don't you know, come back in. And what was your explanation to the police well, you know, I, w I couldn't say nothing. They came up and, and <laughs> grabbed, take my horn, put me in the police thing. <laughs> and there was a soldier, a uh, Navy guy that said, hey, this guy's working. And they even threw him in there. And they were, oh, it was a mess. So my brother came down, bailed me out. It was $50. He got me out of jail. Then I went to court, and the guy said, I tried to explain to him. He said, okay, guilty. The guy said, $50 fine, suspended. Don't do it no more, <laughs> you know. Can you introduce Hunter A. Hancock and the significance that he had within the music scene? Hunter Hancock come in what they said he was playing race music, referring to black artists. And he was from Texas. And so you had like all the, the kids that you see that love me and all of the other different people uh, of race and color they like to hear these different songs, but they couldn't hear it on but one station, Hunter Hancock. Mm -hmm. 
Good hunting, everybody. This is Hunter Hancock, old H.H., getting ready to do a little hunting around for some of the very best in rhythm and blues records, featuring principally the greatest and most popular Negro musicians, singers, entertainers in the world. Hunter was the top DJ in Los Angeles for playing that type of music. And uh, if uh, different artists would cover one of our records, he wouldn't play it. He only played the original. And so he become big. I mean, he's the biggest disc jockey in Los Angeles. I mean, people all around with this because this is the only station. If you want to hear Fats Domino or Joe Turner or B.B. King and all the artists, you know. Hunter Hancock, he was white. Yeah, he's white. Were there other, were there African American DJs on local stations that had shows that also were playing black no. music? Hunter, Hunter Hancock was the only uh, DJ playing. So Hunter was the was the biggest thing here on the coast. And then he had Art LeBeau came in and stuff. And you worked with several vocal groups. Were were you listening to Hunter's show and getting turned on to folks and saying, hey, maybe I want to work with them? Or was it more through channels and friendships within the music community that you would connect with, maybe a vocal group to collaborate with? Well, we all came up together, like Jesse Belvin. You know, he heard things, and then he had, uh, he was recording for Victor Records, you know what I mean? He was incredible. He would give you his coat off his back, you know what I mean? But we came up here. I was the first one to carry him on the road when he was 16, you know. His mother let him go on the road with me. And we had uh, Bobby Day, ba da 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 See, we all came up with Watts together, the Hollywood Four Flames and all these Smokey Hogs, Smokey Lynn, and all, all of us came up and did concerts together, and we worked together, and we did a lot of shows together. We traveled together and played uh, all over the world together. And so a lo lot of this music started on the West Coast, not the East Coast. It started here. And it was very successful. And Hunter was very great because he would go to the schools, he would go to the, the clubs, and he'd go. And we put on shows together. He was a blessing for keeping uh, the race music, would you say, alive here in Los Angeles. Did you have any kind of mentors who were who were saying, here's you know maybe a way to to kind of navigate this territory, which is, you know, territory with ignorant people in it. There's open-minded people, but unfortunately, there's ignorant people. Was there anybody who was kind of helping to advise you on on the way to move through that world? No, uh, we didn't have anyone to encouraged me or to help me because at that time it was very difficult. You know, Nat King Cole, big as he was, yeah. he could not have a sitcom show. Mm -hmm. I mean, all the artists was willing to, Frank Sinatra and all of them was willing to go on the show, but he couldn't have it. Now, he could go on the show, but as he couldn't guest, have yeah. a show. For Sammy mm -hmm. Davis couldn't have a show for himself. Yeah. Different now. What but. was your What was your aspiration at that point? Say, nineteen fifty one. You know, you've got Deacon's Hop behind you. It's already hit. Um, what What were you thinking? Ten years, twenty years down the road. What was your your kind of goal? Well, you know, at that time, when I had the hit, I 
could have went on the road, as I said before, if I say if a board of allies, someone that had a good manager to go and, and see that your money was taken care of, that you wouldn't uh, owe the government money when you come back, yep. you know, because when you're out there working, you don't set aside money for the government and all that. Everybody's taking your money. Everybody's on the payroll doing nothing. And so when you get back, all your money's gone, and then the government steps in and says, mm-hmm. okay, you owe us all this money. Until 1959, there's something on your mind. There's something on your mind. Tell us about that, about that moment, about that song, and about where your head was at and what you were up to. Well, you know, I was working with a kid named Rocky Lucky, and he used to sing with the Rivertons, and we used to play this number, and he had it going like fast down dun 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 the triplets, you know. Mm-hmm. And I said, man, I said, you cut this song in half. You got you got a big hit, hmm. and he said, "Well, Big J, give me twenty five dollars." I bought that and a couple of other songs, because he was singing with the Rivertons, and he wanted to get up to San Francisco. I don't know how you get up there for twenty five dollars. Anyway, he wanted twenty five dollars, so I ran home. I told my mother, "I said, look, I got to have twenty five dollars." I said, "This is a hit." How did you know? It was it just every place we played it. The people would come across your mind. They didn't know that we call it there's something on your mind. But the response that we got from the people, I knew that it was a hit. So I got the $25, went down to the lawyer, we signed a contract, and I bought the song. Hmm. Now, little Sonny that I picked up in Washington, we were together about five years, and he was a gospel singer. He was from Fall Church, Virginia. And he, you know, soulful singer. And uh, like when he'd do Ray Charles, and he was the killer. It rains or tell, you know, I mean, the cat was bad. And um, so we'd get about five years before we recorded. And um, we finally recorded this number, and we stopped playing it. And we recorded it in Seattle, Washington. We got off from work one night. And this guy would record all the acts, Joe Bow, all the acts would come through. Seattle, he, that, that, that was a hobby. So we went down to his basement and we recorded there, something on your mind. Didn't have enough money to get the tapes out, so I came back a year later and I got the tapes, brought them to Los Angeles, 
take it to Hollywood, take it to all the record companies. They all said, no, this is nothing. So Hunter Hancock, you know, he was the one with the said that playing race records. He was the only one to play the black records. And he wouldn't, if you had a cover, he wouldn't play it. He would only play the black artists. And so it was real popular because that, that was the only station. So what he would do, if you had a song, you would play like tape, put it on the air, and if he got some response, he would put it out. Since we did so many shows and stuff together, he said, well, Big J, I'll put this out for you. But I know it ain't going to be nothing, um, but I'll do it for you. So they made it, put it out. I know I had a hit. So I was back in Bobby Darren and Chuck Berry for a tour all the way up San Francisco, all the way up Seattle, was it? Now I'm getting $150 a night, and I had to have a six-piece band. <laughs> and we're paying 10% traveling tax. That's what you had to pay uh, at that time to the international. So my brother came in from Seattle, so we put the band together. So when I got to San Francisco, I put it on the air. At 12 o'clock at night, he come on. There is something. Told the town down. Everybody was screaming and howling. About mm -hmm. this. Now, he's the only disc jockey that got it. And so people were called to the store. Oh, we asking for the number. They said, we don't, we don't have it. They called the distributor. We don't have it. Nobody had He was the only one who had it. And the only time you could hear it is when he played it on the air mm -hmm. at 12 o'clock at night. on the air that, that night, it just taking off. And I called Hunter the next day, I said, hey man, <laughs> you gotta get some records up because this thing's taking off. So I found a kid there, the distributor, and bam, they just sent the records up. So we went on up to uh, Seattle, Washington. I finished the tour with Chuck Berry and Tom Then we came back uh, to San Francisco with B.B. King and drew 5,000 people in the auditorium. But but being a small company, I probably been on a major company. It would went all over the world at one time, and people would have known that I was original. But being with a small company like Hunter, they they don't have no distributors, they don't have nothing, and so Bobby Marchand covered us right away. As soon as he heard, he covered it, and he did part one, part two. And then Hollywood will throw flames. They covered it, put it in Pittsburgh by Marchand. They put it out. In the, so they're thinking that we covering them and they covering us, mm. you know. But uh, Devonport got on the road, and then wherever I was on the road, we stopped promoting it. How did it change your life? Well, you know, it really didn't change my life because my purpose is the kingdom of God. So that's been my hope for all my life, and it protect me because a lot of things you don't get involved in because you're keeping that hope, you know. You've seen a lot of friends go through a lot, you know, in the music oh, world. Yeah, because, see, when you put your whole life into a career and it don't happen, it can affect you mm -hmm. many different ways. Like Sonny Chris, I don't know what happened. They found him dead in his apartment, uh, 
He had been drinking quite a bit, and um, when you don't have that hope, when everything else fails, you still got that hope. I played Morocco, Australia, uh, Japan with these great people, uh, uh, all over the world, all, all type of people, great people, small people, and they all great. And uh, I still have a chance to play at 90 years old. I'm still I'm still here. Ninety years old and plus. Please listen to my story. I was born and raised deep in the heart of LA. Had a deep love for music that never went away. That's here to stay. And I'm here to stay. I learned when I was young to live simple. Mm-hmm. So all my life, I live simple. How does music fuel or feed you? It, it really gives you hope and it helps you to have a relief. Now, like, say, if I didn't play music and then I get that going through different problems and stuff, well, then what do you turn to? Music helps you, you know. I can sit and play down, play my horn, go out and do some gigs and have a good time. It's a great release. It's like, uh, I guess, taking some medicine. Mm-hmm. You know, if you got heart problems, you take a certain medicine. <laughs> you got other different type of diseases, you take medicine. It's just like a, a, a stimulant. Mm-hmm. It, it, it helps you. Because if I didn't, if you didn't have that, then, I mean, what are you going to do? You, well, you have to find something else. Mm-hmm. So music is, is, is great because you can... Really let your feelings go and let play and uh, and enjoy yourself. Then you meet so many great people. That, mm-hmm. that, that that's the key. You're 90 years young. You know yeah. we're we're here in Los Angeles speaking to you, um, and you're you're still at it. You're recording. You're touring. Any kind of words of wisdom for people out there who who might be young musicians? Because you you came up in L.A. Central Avenue, hearing these cats playing and 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 you know doing your own thing, you know following your own path, but being inspired by other people. Anything that you would want young musicians kind of know as a, a key to maybe longevity? You have to have some hope. If you don't have no hope, I mean, what are you going to do? That's what keeps you alive. And like when Mr. Leon said, what a wonderful world, you know. So uh, that's my hope, and that's, that's what really keeps me alive, you know. By studying and constantly studying, going out talking to people and trying to help them. Big J McNeely, you've uh, you've connected with people all over the world, yeah, and yeah. and especially here in Los Angeles, your your home. You know, you're you're a hero here, and uh, at 90 years young, you've got a lot of energy, and you've uh, you've really uh, moved us so much through your music. So, thanks for thanks for everything. Thanks for all the music and good energy you've put into the world. Yeah, thank you very much. It's been a pleasure. In Conversation was produced by Dove Lab, a nonprofit radio station broadcasting live from Los Angeles since 1999. Sound editing and theme song by Matea Vang. 
For more programming, visit dublab.com. And thank you for listening.